Hello, everyone. This is Tony Bell, the creator and host of the What's Up With Docs podcast. We're going to be beginning this episode on a somber note. A good friend of mine and fierce disability and animal rights activist passed away on Sunday. I first met Ingracia Figueroa in 2015 while I was working on my thesis film, Vegan Noir, Black Vegans in Los Angeles. I'm not sure how we connected, but someone must have made an introduction as part of my call for participants. I wanted to ensure that I represented all kinds of Black vegans in my project. Ingracia was born in Oakland, but had roots in the Latinx community and in Louisiana. She was an actress as well. After I interviewed her for my project, we became fast friends. She was one of the most real people I've ever met and was funny as hell. Whether we were talking on the phone or texting, we always ended up laughing. For a while there, we both dealt with insomnia. Sometimes I see her on Facebook at two or three in the morning and, I, and she see I was on Facebook and one of us would eventually text to one another, what you doing up? You know you're supposed to be sleeping. And Gracia was passionate and a fighter and had no time to suffer fools. She always made it plain. As Renella and I have talked about expanding the content of the podcast, one of the segments we've discussed adding is titled, What's Up Not With Dots? In this work that we do, we always hear about the incredible work people are doing to demand and create a more egalitarian world. And Ingracia was a person who was so well-known and well-loved that I wanted to celebrate her. I'm going to read a statement now by the organization Hand to Hand, which goes into more detail about the tragic events that led to Ingracia's passing. The title is Hand to Hand Grieves the Loss of Ingracia Figueroa, and it was posted on November 3rd, 2021 by Blythe Riley, and then updated today, November 5th. And I probably will be crying as I read this, and I'm not going to apologize for my tears. It is with heavy hearts that we share the passing of a beloved member of the hand-in-hand community, Ingracia Figueroa, a fierce advocate for people with disabilities, passed away on Sunday due to complications from injuries she sustained when United Airlines destroyed her custom wheelchair last July. Ingracia was a member of Hand in Hand's California's chapter, active with the long-term care and support services for all coalition and a home and community-based service storytelling fellow. She was also the president of the Board of Communities Actively Living Independent and Free, an independent living center in Los Angeles, as well as an actor, animal rights activist, surfer, and devout vegan. She's a joyful, fierce, creative leader. This past July, Ingracia represented Hand in Hand in Washington, D.C. at the Care Can't Wait rally and Communities of Care art installation to demand that Congress make investments in our broken home care system. She spoke alongside friend and home care worker, Christine Lang, about the necessity of raising wages for home care workers and ensuring reliable, high-quality support for all. Together, they advocated for making home care jobs good jobs to both enable workers to support their families, as well as to address the widespread workforce shortages, which often leads to forced institutionalization of people with disabilities and older adults. On the plane ride back from DC, United Airlines destroyed Ingracia's wheelchair, which was custom designed to support her spinal cord injury and left leg amputation. Ingracia's wheelchair was critical to her independence as well as essential to maintaining her health. 
Ingrassia and Christine were stuck in the airport for nearly five hours, during which Ingrassia was forced to sit in a broken manual wheelchair. Her struggle to maintain her balance over that length of time and the faulty device led to the development of pressure sores. When she was finally able to return home, she experienced acute pain and was admitted to the hospital shortly after. Instead of releasing the demolished wheelchair, United Airlines insisted that they would only pay to have it repaired. But a motorized wheelchair that has undergone that much damage poses a severe risk of fire and is unsafe. Furthermore, the Lona chair United provided further exasperated her injuries. At Ingracia's request, hand-in-hand spearheaded a media campaign against the company, along with our partners at Caring Across Generations and support from the Care Can't Wait Coalition. Together, we launched a petition that gathered over 2,000 signatures, and Ingracia's story was covered in multiple media outlets, including ABC National News. And Gracia obtained the support of Senator Tammy Duckworth's office, who also reached out to United Airlines on her behalf. While Gracia did not ask for this fight against United, she felt she had a duty to bring awareness to this pervasive issue in the airline industry. On average, airlines damage or destroy 29 wheelchairs per day. As Gracia's story shows, the consequences of this ableism and mistreatment are devastating. And Gracia said in multiple interviews, mobility devices are an extension of our bodies. When they are damaged or destroyed, we become re-disabled. Until the airlines learn how to treat our devices with the care and respect they deserve, flying remains inaccessible. Ultimately, United Airlines agreed to fully replace Gracia's chair valued at $30,000. However, the months in which they fought against the replacement took a toll on her body. While fighting with United to replace her chair, Ingracia was forced to use a loaner chair that was not properly fitted to her body. This further exasperated her pressure sores and caused muscle spasms, severe edema, and an inability to eat, as well as two additional hospitalizations. The sore became infected and the infection eventually reached her hip bone requiring emergency surgery to remove the infected bone and tissue. And Gracia passed away on the morning of Sunday, October 31st, 2021. All of us at Hand in Hand are heartbroken, shocked and enraged by Gracia's needless death. This loss never should have happened. While we are reeling from the layers of injustice, this tragedy makes visible. We are holding Gracia's tenacity and resolve as our guideposts. Lives are at stake in the work that we do, and our current ableist and racist systems continues to fail our communities time and time again. We cannot and will not stand by and let these systems of oppressions prevail. We demand that United Airlines end the damage of wheelchairs and assistive devices on its flights and create an accessible process for people with disabilities to travel safely with dignity. That was a statement from Hand in Hand. Like so many, I am shocked and devastated and also enraged by Ingrassi's death. It didn't have to happen. And our passing demonstrates how deadly, seemingly benign neglect, casual indifference 
deflection and ableism can be. These are matters of life and death. And we all have a responsibility not just talk about doing better, but to actually do better. There's so many filmmakers with disabilities who not only have to deal with everything that comes with filmmaking and festival premieres and attendance, but have the additional added anxiety and worry of whether the devices that they use that are essential to their mobility will be damaged in transit. And then they have to think about what might happen if an airline fails to be accountable, as well as the possible health consequences. Frankly, this is some bullshit. So what can we do before you book your next flight? Check out their record on how they treat people with disabilities. If they treat these folks horribly, don't give them your money and let them know why. And if you're a big festival thinking about partnering with the airline as a sponsor or as a trade partner, do your research first, examine their record. And if it's not good, say no to the cash. One thing my grandmother would always say was not all money is good money. We would like to extend our condolences to Gracia's family and all the people who knew her, worked with her, and loved her. There are so many organizations, including Hand in Hand, that are working closely with Gracia's family to not only carry on Gracia's work, but to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. Please sign up for Hand in Hand's newsletter for updates on how you can support their work, as well as continue to seek justice in Gracia's memory. We'll be putting up a page in the next few days with all this information, as well as links for organizations and articles that are related to this strategy. Thank you so much for listening. And to my sister and dear friend in Gracia, rest in peace and rest in power. Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. November is Native American Heritage Month. Here are some ways you can support Indigenous people this month and throughout the year. These tips were posted on the Body is Not an Apologies website and are attributed to Courtney Yellow Wolf Wilson. You can follow Courtney Yellow Wolf Wilson on Instagram at Court Yellow Wolf. Again, that's Court Yellow Wolf. Ways to support. If you are asking an Indigenous person to speak or educate this month, compensate them. Don't let this month be the only time you reach out to Indigenous people to work with them. Compensate all the Indigenous people on social media that are creating the content that you are consuming. Support Indigenous businesses, grassroots movements, and nonprofits. You can find some listed on www.ndnoando.com n-d-n-o-a-n-d-o.com. Show up, support, and amplify Indigenous voices. Demand justice for Indigenous peoples. Fight for Native representation. Vote with Indigenous people in mind. Learn whose land you're on by visiting www.native-land.com. Go beyond land acknowledgement by building relationships with Indigenous peoples that are reciprocal. Make sure to stream Indigenous artists' music and read books by Indigenous authors. Educate yourself on residential and boarding schools. Educate yourself on pipelines, the missing and murdered Indigenous peoples crisis, 
And they continued genocide from colonialism and capitalism. An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz is a great place to start. Also, educate yourself on the traumas of Indigenous children in foster care and the Indian Child Welfare Act. Respect Native belief systems as you would your own religion. Support the fight to change race-based mascots. Attend virtual or safe in-person events celebrating and honoring Indigenous peoples. Visit Indigenous-owned and Indigenous-led museums and cultural centers. Stop and call out colonialism, racism, and cultural appropriation. Support Land Back. Visit landback.org to learn more about this movement. Again, that's landback.org. Learn the truth behind Thanksgiving and learn the truth behind the history of the United States. And last but not least, support and uplift Indigenous people every day, not just on Indigenous Peoples Day or Native American Heritage Month. These ways to support Indigenous people are attributed to Courtney Yellow Wolf Wilson. And you can follow her on Instagram at Court Yellow Wolf. Again, that's Court Yellow Wolf. And don't forget to support one of our content partners, Neoteros Seacast, by subscribing and listening to their podcast. In this episode, I speak with a publicist and one of the founders of Noise Film PR, Marion Vikenkamp. During our conversation, we get into her publicist origin story some of the differences between PR firms in the U.S. and Europe, and the unique ways a publicist can position a documentary film in the European Documentary Festival landscape. We also chat about how publicists and impact producers can often build upon and support one another's work on behalf of a filmmaker. Miriam and Noise Film PR represented several films at Doc Leipzig and are representing more films at IFA that are part of the Steps Generation Africa program. To celebrate these young filmmakers from the continent, this week's song is Coco Rocco's Abusi Junction. Coco Rocco are a collective of young musicians brought together by a love for Afrobeat led by trumpeter Sheila Maurice Gray. They specialize in a soul-shaking horn-fueled sound with West African roots and inner London hues. Abusi Junction is a ballad written by guitarist Oscar Jerome. It was written on the roof of a compound in Gambia where the band spent time last year immersing themselves in the soundscapes of the region. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in October, 2021. Um, you first reached out to myself and Ronell like last year around this time. And um, we invited you to podcast and we just had to figure out a date and it took a minute, but you are finally here and we are so happy about that. I mean, so much has changed in the last year and then again, so much hasn't, so. <laughs> First thing I just want to ask you is how you got into PR. Not too long ago when I was moving house, I actually found my yearbook when I was in my last year of high school. And so this is about 18 years ago and they asked me, what do you want to achieve in the next 10 years? And I wrote down, I want my own PR agency. Oh my God, you knew. So <laughs> I did. And I completely forgot about it and until I found the yearbook. So I, I think it's always been there to sort of, I was always sort of intrigued by PR and just by sort of promoting things. And when I was a student, I was doing sort of side things for my student association as well. And there was always, I think, that sort of connection to the cultural 
industries as well. I've done some theater at the beginning, so I was sort of still figuring out which way to go. And then I was in, I think it was my final year of my studies when I was looking for an internship. And through actually a family where I used to babysit, who were actually, who were in, working in the film business, and they had a friend who had just opened a PR agency in Amsterdam, and they were looking for their very first intern, and that was me, and I never left. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing because it's it's rare for people to, first of all, just thinking about you in high school, like knowing what PR is, articulating that so clearly this is what I want to do I'm like who in high school knows that but clearly it was you yeah yeah I remember we had this woman coming to our school like they had these um sort of days like professional days where people would come and talk about their work and I remember there was this woman who had a PR agency not at all in film but just I remember she telling about dealing with press and dealing with sort of promotional materials and I just thought oh I really like how diverse this sounds, I want to do that. Right. And, and I guess it's the type of profession where every, in this case, in your case, every film that you take on is different. So each campaign can be, can be different, just depending on what the film's needs are and what the filmmaker needs. So you have that variety. You have the variety. And I think I'm also, um, because I work so much at film festivals, so I'm, I go from super intense time frame so there are weeks where I work you know 80 100 hours a week and then I sort of crash but I also have that time to crash I think these sort of highs and lows work really well I feel like I can perform better when I just have a lot to do when I said when I have a few things to do I think oh this can wait this can wait I just rather have a very long to-do list and then I'm just full force yes okay you are talking to a, a fellow to-do lister person right here yeah it's like I'm the type of, if I have one thing to do like oh it's not gonna happen but if I have like oh I could just like a long list I could just be I could really be structured and focused so you interned at this PR firm and were they film focused yeah so they were I think it was, it's mostly tv and film and actually Noise is sort of the international arm of that company where I started. I've, I finished my studies and they said, oh, we really like working with you. Do you want to come back? And then I did and sort of started on the project base. And I, my first job, one of my first jobs was uh, working for a TV show in the Netherlands, which was really cool because it was a children's educational series, which I used to watch as a child. So for me, that was a great, great moment. And then during my internship, one of the first thing I had to do was handle a film premiere. And I remember the, the woman, Norcha, who's now my, my colleague, I don't know if she could make it that day or if she was ill, but I had to handle this premiere on my own. And I really, really enjoyed it. I really realized that this is what I want to do. And I was good at it. I felt comfortable in that position of sort of handling press at that event. So that went really well. And then we started doing, like in the beginning, we still did some theater. We still did some art exhibitions as well, apart from film and TV. But then it sort of became more and more clear that film and TV is where our hearts were. Exactly, exactly. So let's go back to that first premiere you had to um, handle. So, and 
I just want to kind of get into the spe specifics of like what you had, what you were doing like that day. What wasn't I doing? No. <laughs> so I would say most of it was. So it was, um, the film was called Skin. And it was a premiere in Rotterdam, which is where I'm from. And it was really about sort of, on the one hand, getting the film crew in that cinema, just making sure that everybody was seated, but also there, it was the national premiere. So there was press at the event. There were, um, I don't think there was like an actual red carpet, but at least there was some press there. So just making sure that I paired the journalists to the talents that were there, who was allowed to shoot in the cinema, who wasn't, what kind of recordings could people make, who needed to talk to whom. So it was a fairly tight schedule, just getting people from probably the dinner that they had before to the cinema, making sure people were there for the Q&A. Um, just this whole sort of professional terms now you would call that a premiere protocol so that's the whole handling of that protocol on that day and it's very hands-on it's also a lot of sort of crisis management because especially when you're with a large group and with a lots of with a lot of talents you might lose somebody and then somebody heads off to the restroom and they're gone for half an hour and somebody went out for a smoke and so it's really about keeping all these people together but also making sure that the press that's there, that they get the quotes that they came for, that they talk to the people they came for, that they um, have the shots that they needed in order to make their item for the news or any kind of. That is a lot to manage. Like I, I would describe that as um, herding cats. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's, it, it was the kind of thing that gave me this adrenaline rush, I think. Um, and sort of having to perform like on the spot. And I mean, you're gonna make mistakes and that's okay. I think just being in that moment and just making sure, like once you sit down and the lights go off and the film has started, you can sort of- You can relax. relax yes, days. okay. Yeah. Like, everybody's here, everybody's seated. Yeah, so I think that, that premiere definitely sort of planted the seed for the rest of my career, yeah. You interned, then you got hired. And then at what point did you, so were, was the organization just primarily focused on projects in your country? Yeah. Um, but then did you have this idea like, hey, let's go international. There's a whole world here. Yeah, that, that started within the first, so I think I started working at Hedy in, if I remember correctly, it was 2008. And then around, 2011, 2012, we started working more and more for projects at the film festival in Rotterdam. Our office is based in Amsterdam. And then we started working for the film festival in Rotterdam. And then came more actually from the documentary world. And this is why I, why I ended up working, I think, with so many documentaries. Because we were in Amsterdam, the one big festival that we have in Amsterdam is yeah, it's huge. It's huge. It's big. Yeah. And from there on, actually, we knew the people that were working at the press department and they actually got a request from some film teams saying, listen, we have some film teams coming to Amsterdam. They need somebody to sort of take care of them, to maybe organize some interviews for them and to see if they can create some noise around the premieres in the Netherlands. Would you be interested in handling that? And that's how we started doing our first films at ITFA 
which was, I think, around 2012, 2013. Um, so that's why we said, okay, cool, we might need an international name because the Dutch name is Harry, which means noise in Dutch. But then we thought, Harry, if you pronounce it in an English, it's Harry. So people think I'm either called Harry or, or, or Harry. Harry. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's um, it didn't work too well. So that we thought let's let's just translate it to noise. So that's how the name noise was born, and it was just out of practical reasons. And a year after working at ITFA and working on those films, I decided to move to Berlin because I fell in love with the city of Berlin. And then I thought, well, wait a second, we can actually. By then, I was also a partner in the company in Amsterdam. So we thought. We can actually continue this work with me being remote by working at those festivals. Yeah. So I did it. I just thought, you know what, before I do this, I'm just going to go to the Berlinale, to the Berlin International Film Festival. So I got myself an accreditation, booked myself an Airbnb, went to Berlin and just went to the festival and just to see how things were going, just to yeah, sort of grasp that feeling of those big international film festivals and understand the whole concept of it. So that was Berlinale. And then we moved to Berlin in 2013 in December. I sort of saved up some money so I could at least go a few months without working. And then I actually got the opportunity to work on a few films at the Berlinale two months after I moved to Berlin. And then I thought, sure, I can do that. I know how this festival works. Let's go. And then the money I earned with that, I actually then again invested into going to Cannes. I went to the Toronto International Film Festival to really explore how those festivals were working. And that's where things started becoming more and more international. Essentially, when you were thinking about moving into these new spaces, the first thing you did is, is like you went in and you observed. You yeah. took the time to learn. It's really important, especially with film festivals, because, I mean, they're very overwhelming, let's be honest. Oh, absolutely. It's, there's a lot going on. And, I mean, I have been, my first voluntary job was actually at IFA, just bringing, I remember it was just bringing water bottles to uh, the people who were giving masterclasses. That was the first film festival experience I ever had. And then, but it does, I, in exchange, I got five tickets for ITVA. And just by going there, yeah, as you say, observing how things are going. And you can also then understand how, how easy it is to meet people, even just in line or sitting next to a person in the cinema. That's one thing I really miss about um, traveling the festival is is that all the interactions that happen between the unofficial stuff like you say you meet people waiting in line like for a party or like sitting at a restaurant or you even in the restroom you know <laughs> yeah, yeah you, know, you do you know, you be, and, washing your hands yeah. okay who are you yeah or like sitting in the communal areas you're waiting for an event to start you, you just start conversations and this business is about relationships and obviously like the work that you do as a publicist is definitely about relationships and making those connections. Especially in the beginning I just invested a lot of time also in getting to know people so when I would just go through a press list and reach out to people and say hey 
do you want to meet up for a cup of coffee? Because I'm fairly new to this, but I would love to be able to offer you the things that you're looking for. So let's just meet and let's see who you are and what you do and take it from there. But it is, it's really about, and a lot of those connections can be happening in a very random way, um, which, which is great, which is what makes this industry so special as well. Exactly. So I want to ask, was there a difference that you noticed um, in the work that you needed to provide for festivals that, for sorry, for films that were going to IDFA, IDFA versus films that were going to Berlinale? It is, it's definitely different. I think just first of all, because the Berlinale is so much bigger and even just in terms of the sheer amount of press that is attending the festivals. Um, and that's that's something that's still there. On the one hand, though, if you look at a festival like ITFA, it's, it's all focused on documentaries. So press really has full attention for documentaries, whereas especially when you're as a documentary competing with major fiction feature films, it's very easy for a documentary to just sort of go under the radar and just never be heard of again. Edifice. Yeah, I feel like um, documentary in general is is considered like the the redheaded stepchild of Hollywood. Even though I mean, there's so much more great content yes, yes. and it's more and more recognized. But Renelle and I went to an event earlier um, this week, and it, it was a great event. But it was very Hollywood. It was definitely very Hollywood focused. It was interesting because some of the questions that the audience were asking were um, just about really, uh, I think ultimately about building community. And I was sitting there just thinking that like, oh my God, so many people in the documentary space are already doing this work. Like if you would just talk to them, <laughs> you could kind of be ahead of the curve, you know? Yeah. yeah it was really, it was really fascinating. Yeah. Like it just wasn't on, it was clear it wasn't even on people's radar. Yeah, it's interesting. And again, I think because in, especially in documentaries, we've all been depending so much on each other and the network that we have. And you can question to what extent that's sort of healthy to always like the, rely on favors of others. But it is, I mean, also in terms of budgets, budgets are often smaller. So you you need that sort of sense of community. And and also I think because you are so, so many people are so personally invested in documentaries as well, whether it's with like financial means or whether it's because the story is so personal, there's a lot of, I would say, emotion that, Absolutely. That, bring, that people bring to the table in documentary. So I think that maybe created that. And maybe also just by being the underdogs for a long time, it sort of gets this sort of we feeling, like this group feeling of people in the dark world. Exactly, exactly. So how long have you been living in Berlin now? I've been living here for almost eight years now. So really, um, I've still been doing some Dutch work. I'm actually going to be uh, moving back to the Netherlands next year. So that's going to be a big step. Although I don't think for my work much will change, but I, I've always been doing some of the, some smaller projects for the Dutch company in the background with everything being hybrid these days. And uh, because I mostly travel through Europe, I don't travel that big of a distance anyway, so that it, it doesn't really matter if I do my work from, from the Netherlands. Or... Everything in Europe is, is so close, you know. It is. <laughs> and and uh, compared to the United States, because like 
I feel like everything is so big and space, you know, and well, it is, it's, it's a big country. Um, and I'll tell this little story because it's funny. I was uh, I was traveling with a friend over the past like 30 days via train from the East Coast to the West Coast. Oh, yeah. You and, yeah. yeah, it was so much fun. Um, and because Amtrak had a special deal and we had meticulously planned this trip you know, down to like the minute because there in some places there was like only one train a day. But Somehow, we did not realize how far Portland was away from California. And we were thinking like, oh, like Oregon's on top of California. No, it's a short train ride. But from Portland to Oakland, it's like 18 hours. Oh, my goodness. Because like we forgot, like California is a really long stay. Like, I'm like, that doesn't make sense, you know? Whereas yeah. like um, when I've, I've traveled to Europe, my routine has been, I go to the Czech Republic and I go to the Yulava Documentary Film Festival. Then I head to Germany for Doc Leipzig. And, you know, I, I get on a bus in Prague and I think it's like a four hour bus. And then like you're in Germany. I mean, I was just thinking where 18 hours will take me. I'm probably like Southern Italy in 18 hours. So do you um, primarily work with um, projects in Europe or do people from overseas like approach you? Yeah, I work with projects from all over the world. I do, uh, I am specialized in Europe, like launching at, at European film festivals. So I don't, there are people that do the work that I do in the US. I don't know that many people on the African continent that do this work or in Asia. Um, I do know some people in the US that do this. Um, so usually when there's any kind of bigger festival there, I would refer people to any of my colleagues. So I'm mostly working at European film festivals, but then for projects from all over the world. So I think in the last few years, I've been working on projects from the Philippines, from Australia, from South Africa, from Brazil, from Greenland, from all over the world. When someone is coming to get help, on their PR campaign, they're not from Europe. What are some of the things that you kind of educate them on just to get them up to speed about how things run there? Yeah, I, th I mean, this is, I think, for people both in and outside of Europe. Um, because I think just generally people are not too familiar with a publicist. And this is even, this is also people in Europe because especially, I think the word publicist for a lot of people means sort of a person who does damage control after some kind of scandal in Hollywood. That's sort of the idea that people have with a publicist. So it, it can also sound a bit scary. It can also sound very expensive, like, okay, I need to put thousands and thousands of euros or dollars of money in this in order to even be able to afford a publicist. So it, it has this sort of status around it which I would like to debunk because I don't think that's that's always the case and here in the U.S. publicists are expensive there are people who hire publicists for all kinds of things but usually a lot of the conversation around publicists comes around the awards here to retain a good publicist for for example an Oscar campaign it's like a hundred thousand yeah. dollar retainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are really expensive campaigns. Yeah, exactly. I think what you need to educate people on is that a publicist is really there by your side to help you launch your film into the world and really 
uh, make the most of your festival launch. So you only, you're only going to do your world premiere once and you want to do it right. And you want to use that momentum to really, again, create some noise, create a bit of a buzz around your film. So people have it on their radar, because if you look at a festival such as the Berlin Film Festival or ITFA, um, there are sometimes over two or 300 films premiering at that festival. So how are you gonna stand out at that festival? And how are you gonna use that opportunity? And that's, in my opinion, what a film publicist does is really to help you navigate the festival to also really determine with you so what are your goals what do you want that's often a question that i ask people what do you want to take out of this festival so once the festival's over what needs to have happened in order for you to sort of leave with a smile on your face and of course press is a big part of that so getting press coverage and pitching your film to the press is a big part of it but it can also just be helping somebody navigating the festival and do you need posters or flyers for example at the festival do you need a social media campaign is it worth organizing an event around your film and how is this all going to contribute to you making your film visible amongst the right people because also i don't think every kind of publicity is always the right. Does that depend on what the filmmaker needs or actually, but, and also like what the film is about? Yeah, it is. And it, it might also, it, it also happens that I clash with the filmmaker on that, that I see, look at a film completely different than a filmmaker does and you can have a conversation about it. And I mean, sometimes you work it out and sometimes you don't and then you don't work together and that's fine. It's also, I think, working with a publicist because that person is going to be so closely connected to your film there needs to be that personal connection as well there needs to be trust like mutual trust as well because the publicist is going to launch your film so you need to trust your publicist but i also need to sort of trust my filmmakers that they will keep me in the loop about things that they will tell me if things are going on and, and i mean this is when we talk about damage control i mean it, it doesn't have to be sort of damage control, but if there's some kind of crisis, this can be sort of things within your team or any kind of media related, always tell your publicist because they can help you. That's that I would say is the key. They will help you bring your film into the world. Or I mean, sometimes it can be very practical things that people don't know is people might just think that as a publicist, I'm actually going to be the one writing stories about the film that I'll be publishing something about the film and like that's yeah. not yeah that's not what you do no. <laughs> right no it's not that, that's, no. that's that's what the press does so how there are other people who are a lot better at that right me. yeah so how early do you get involved so basically as soon as a project gets accepted into a festival is that when you get involved that's usually so classically that's the the moment where people would contact me and there are some projects um, that I sort of scout earlier on through their process. So when I go to um, any kind of pitches throughout the year, I, I really like to go to the East Dock platform, for example, in Prague and watch their pitches and 
there you can already see sort of what's coming. That's when I try to connect with filmmakers in an early stage, but there isn't that much that you can actually do during the shooting of your film. I would say that, yeah, that your big momentum is once you know that you've been accepted into a festival. And it's really, it's also really important because there aren't that many publicists and I know a lot of them will take on a limited number of films because you want to take care of all your films exactly. well. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, it happens in practice that people will contact me a week before. No, y'all, you can't do that, <laughs> <laughs> Or I've had it where people contacted me a day before. Like, could you help us? It's like, no, no. I can't. <laughs> I can't. This, because I want to do it well. And, we, you know, you, I approach it with a certain strategy as well, each film. And we really think about how am I going to position this film? It's not, people often think as well that it's like, oh, I send out a press release and then I and just And that's it, back. yeah. And, that's, <laughs> and I'll just wait for things to happen, <laughs> which I wish, I mean, it was that simple. It, it might, if I'm working with sort of major stars, then it might be a bit simpler. But even then, I mean, you still need to do a lot of follow-up. But yeah, so a, a day before, no. But I would say, and... I've been giving some some sort of master classes and workshops about this as well, especially in the last year and a half, to really get in touch with a publicist the moment you know when your world premiere is going to be. And I'm saying world pre- I would say world premiere is sort of your big moment. And then again, if you've had your world premiere in Europe, for example, and you're done and you're then going to go to the US for a US premiere, that's going to that can be a second sort of moment where that you can benefit from but also if you have a good publicist they will also be able to tell you if it's worth hiring publicists I love that like I guess it depends on the festival and whether the filmmakers come into you like when they had that world premiere or if it's like another like just a country premiere yeah so what are some what are some of the factors that determine that like whether they even need to hire somebody like you yeah, I would say it starts with the, the premiere status. So let's say world or international premiere, that sort of is the first thing. And then looking at where that premiere is going to be. So first of all, which festival it's going to be. And then even the sort of program strand that your film will play in is going to matter in sort of pitching it because and then it, it it depends a bit on sort of a lot of expectation management, I would say, because even again, if you look at the, the Berlin Film Festival, let's say you've been selected for the Panorama strand, or let's say the major press outlets, the first focus is going to be the main competition of the festival, which I mean includes anything from like let's say 30 films. Um, so you have the main competition. That's already 30 films for journalists to cover in a time span of 12 days. So then you have that. Then you have the encounters competition in Berlin. So you have, you have two competitive strands that people will focus on. And then you have panorama. So you need to really be aware of sort of what are your unique selling points of your film? How can we make this film? 
important enough for people to maybe skip a competition film for it or maybe sort of look beyond what's the obvious choice at a festival. So that's, that's a big thing that matters in the whole campaign. And then I would say sort of the, the expectations people have, the goals that people have. So we can work on a film that's not an international premiere, that's maybe not even a world premiere. It depends on what their goals are. It does. So let's, let's take IFA, for example. We've been working on films there that are not world premiering, but they're so topic driven that they want to focus much more on getting an audience and really reaching out to the right people and having a more audience focused campaign as opposed to, let's say, a industry driven or B2B campaign during the big festivals. When you're talking with the filmmaker and they tell you, hey, I got into this festival, do you help negotiate things like which strand they'll be in or like what their screening times will be? Because, you know, screening times are important. You, you get into a festival, but maybe you have like an 8 a.m. screening time. Not a lot of people are going to attend that, you know. I know. Yeah. So. No, it's interesting. Yeah. I just had a conversation about that with somebody today. Actually, it's not something that I know that there are some publicists who do that. I do, I do think it's mostly your sales agent that will, um, that might be able to help you with that, or maybe your film institute, depending on where you're from. Um, but it, I mean, it, that's a big factor. We've had films where you then get your screening times and it says premiere Tuesday morning, 11 a.m. Ah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a big difference from, I don't know, a Saturday evening. Yeah, 8, 8, 8 p.m. Exactly. It's a huge difference. Yeah. So that's, um, that's not really something, but it, I do sort of help. To once we know where the film's going to premiere, to really look at that strategy and think, okay, how are we going to navigate the festival and how can we make the most out of this? So what are some of the films that you are working with? One of the projects that I'm, I'm really, really happy to be working with, there are actually three films from, you might know, the Generation Africa project. Tell us about that. I mean, I've been working on a few films of that uh, project. It's actually a collection of 25 documentaries, anything from short to feature length films. And it's uh, produced by Steps in South Africa. And it's this whole collection of films is, 25 films from 16 different African countries. They, they're really working on sort of the perspective um, of African youth through the topic of immigration. And it's really taking ownership of that narrative, which I think we've all been really, really missing for a very long yes, time. Yes, like the, the questions of authorship. Yes, absolutely. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. And we had the first film of that project premiering at CPH Docs called The Last Shelter. Gorgeous film from Mali, from Usman Samaseku. And it won the main award at CPH Docs. And it's apart from just being a, a really important story, it's, it's this gorgeous film. It's one of those films that I'm just, it's going to be showing at ITFA again. And it's the first time where I'll be seeing it on the big screen and I can't wait. 
is this like the first time, like your first, well, I always say post-COVID, but we're not post-COVID. Is this your first like big scene of film on the big no, screen? Okay. I've been lucky. I've been very, very lucky to travel a bit over the summer. Um, the first film I saw on the big screen was another film in the Generation Africa project called Sinda by Aisha Maki from, uh, she's from Niger. And that was the first, it's played at Vision de Réal in the main competition. And I think we were allowed 25 people. In oh, wow. 25 or 30 people. Okay. So we were with, we were a very small delegation of people in Nyon in Switzerland. And I remember just the lights going off and I had seen the film before at home on my laptop, but then the lights went up and the film started and I got goosebumps. And yes. I, I just cried so much during the film. Just thinking, I'm in a cinema. I'm in a yes. cinema watching a documentary with my peers. Yeah, I, I know that experience well. So the first film that I saw was Fruits of Labor at the Los Angeles Latino Film Festival. And it was like overwhelming. Because, you know, you just, because we were used to looking at our little screens for like for 18 months, but it, it was just, I, but it was also incredibly emotional just being in a, in a theatrical very, space. It's very. like, oh my God. And like, I remember I got, uh, I got a slushy and I, for, I just had forgotten how large, because, you know, we do everything big, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> how large the small was. I'm like, oh my God, that's so much. <laughs> I have to finish this. Show. I was like, oh my God, like, that's so much caffeine. Yeah. But just like everything, it was just, it was just great. I mean, it was a very emotional experience. And it's, I mean, also that, that was also the kind of film that works so well on the big screen. And I know every filmmaker says it. But. I know, but some things you absolutely have to see on the big screen because, you know, they're, you know, particularly if they have like, there was expansive and they're large landscapes. Like yes, you have, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah. so what is that film about? It's from Niger. Mm -hmm. uh, the film from Niger is in there. It's actually, it's about a district uh, called Karakara. And it's traditionally, I believe it's a leper district. And it sort of evolved to becoming more of the red light district of this, this it's a town called Zindar. You said leper as in like leprosy? Yeah, it was like long, long time ago, long, long time ago. And now it's more of the, let's say red light district of, of Zindar. And Aisha Maki, the director, she's from Zindar and she actually goes into this neighborhood and finds these gangs, very masculine gangs of very sort of stereotypically masculine men. And it's all about weightlifting and physical appearance. It's really about how they sort of stick together. And it's also about the, the things they did as sort of gang members, but also about how they are making their way, their way out of it and, and sort of creating a better future for themselves and for future generations, but also the tensions that are there on the border between Niger and Nigeria, and just also her immersing in this world as a woman is amazing to see how the men open up to her, but also I think because it's a film, female filmmaker, she has this incredible vulnerability, which just shows on the screen and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing film. And that was the second film of the Generation Africa uh, project that was launched. And now actually the new batch of films is ready. So I'm going to be heading to Leipzig with three of the new, three new films from the project. 
um, one of them in the main competition called Fatih's Choice um, from Ghana. And then we have uh, Niel, The Separation, and then we have um, Stay Up. And so it's, I'm, I'm hoping still that the filmmakers will be able to be there with us. I mean, it's all a bit tricky, of course, now with, with traveling, but I, I think if we are able to go, that's going to be really, really emotional together with the producers from South Africa. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that and sort of continuing the journey because it's quite unusual for me to accompany a project for such a long time because usually you would be engaged and just, yeah, as you said, once you know that you've made it to a festival, which is, you know, six, eight weeks prior to the festival, and then my work generally stops about two or three weeks after the festival is over. Um, and here, I mean, of course, it's not one film, but it is a bigger project. Exactly. It's part of a, sort of a, a, follow up a series of films. So um, yeah. what are some of the um, unique needs that, um, like, because you, you're working with this Generation Africa project, what are some of the um, things in regards to PR that are unique that you've had to do for for these projects um, because there have been particularly in Europe there have been in a lot of European festivals there have been all these conversations about authorship and like who's telling whose stories and um, people from the global south like rightfully and righteously pushing to, to tell their own stories and get support to do that without being seen through a European lens. What are the things are that you are doing around PR just to help these films get into the world on their own terms? First of all, by just treating it in the basis as any other film, especially with the ones that are in competition, they're just really, really good competition films. So first of all, when I pitch a film, it's already great to say that, look at this film, it's going to be in competition. Then, of course, because we are getting more and more stories from the African continent, but they are still underrepresented, I do feel that just the film being from there, and also especially the filmmakers telling their own story, that's where the power lies in these films. And it's also because, I think it's because I so generally feel and believe that these stories deserve more attention that I, I, I become almost like aggressive in me pushing for it because I just am so convinced that people need to see these stories. And also, I think we've all had enough of this white gaze on stories. And that just for me is a, a reason to push for those films, but just as much them being an artistic accomplishment as a film itself. There are, and this is not the case with the Generation Africa film, but there are also films where you think, okay, the topic is really important, whether it being on migration or I don't know, mental illness or climate change. There are a lot of topics that I care about, but it doesn't mean that I would represent just any kind of film about that topic, because I do think it still needs to be a really good film, especially when I'm representing it as part of a film festival. So you still, you want people to be convinced to watch the film 
because they care about the film, but you really want them to get out of the film. Wow, this, that was an amazing immersive experience just as much. And that you could see, for example, for The Last Shelter, which has this, these gorgeous images of the Sahel Desert, which, as, as you say, those wide landscapes that deserve to be seen on the big screen. You can tell that people are really open for that, but I do think a, a film needs to be able to survive as a film and as a artistic product to like make it to the top. But I mean, of course, when handling these films, you do also look at the fact that they are made by African filmmakers. So we've done, for example, I've contacted um, Africa as a country, amazing website who did a huge interview with the, a double interview with the filmmakers of both The Last Shelter. The most important thing is to discuss with a filmmaker what their intentions are with the film and how they look at the film. And I think it's a publicist's job to amplify that message. Um, I mean, and also it's something you, you need to agree on together because it can be a message that I'm not behind at all. Right. <laughs> like, I don't want to, yeah, I, don't, I do not yeah. support that. <laughs> Which happens, and it's, I mean, it's fine, and I might then not be the right person for it. It also might happen that you don't see any sort of artistic connection to a film. But I think with, with every film that I work on, I look at both the film as an artistic product, but also the topic that it deals with. So you try to find media outlets, but also journalists where you know or you expect that they might be having some kind of connection to the topic. So you look at what did they write about before, what kind of films did they review before? And that I think makes every film and every project unique because they're not all the same. And you can, of course, with, with a project such as Generation Africa, you can use that sort of collective common that they have, but it might also be a very stylistic film. Another film that we're going to Leipzig with is called Krai, which is a Austrian documentary from a filmmaker with Russian roots, who sort of goes back to this, let's say his hometown and makes, it's a bit of a hybrid documentary and a homage to this. But, and this is a gorgeous black and white film, which stylistically is so unique, again, that, that that's the thing that you will sort of focus, focus on. on. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that can, because I mean, let's face it, in documentaries, we don't have, we can't say, oh, the film stars Susan Sarandon. No, it, exactly. <laughs> you know, I have yeah. that plug. I mean, but I guess sometimes celebrities step in to, to executive produce. Yeah, EP. So you could kind of lean on that yeah, a little bit. That helps. But, and yeah. you might, of course, even within the documentary uh, world, you have those big names um, that you can be working with. Um, so I can be just as starstruck by a really good documentary filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember that the place where I used to work, the filmmaker who did Ketty came in. Clearly I'm a cat lady, but there's so many cat ladies in the office and we were just like in awe of her. I was like, oh my God, I don't, like, I don't know what to ask her. Like, she's so amazing. Yeah, it's great. No, it's, <laughs> I think, yeah, people in the documentary 
world deserve just as much celebrity status as yeah, exactly yeah. exactly yeah it just depends on what you like and yeah. love yeah. you know um so i also wanted to ask so you are you work with the filmmakers for in regards to you know prepping them for q a's do you also um work with protagonists because sometimes protagonists are very front and center at these yeah. events and that even starts with the conversation um, with the filmmakers on whether or not we should include the protagonists in any kind of press activities. Either um, a person may not be able to express themselves in a way that you would like to. It also might be that they are very vulnerable, so you want to protect them. Exactly. Especially if it's a very sensitive subject of the film. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just let a person be there and We've had films where we had a protagonist there, but we just want to kept them sort of out of the spotlight. So the protagonist was there in a the cinema and they just stood up at the end of the film and just like received the applause that they were getting, but not really getting them involved in the Q&A afterwards, for example. And my, I mean, my experience, especially when you're dealing with film focused media is that they will be mostly interested in the filmmakers, generally anyway. It's mostly when you have sort of human interest media that will focus on the protagonist as well. Although there's often press that will come once you are getting a release in a certain country, that's when those stories start to matter. But also very often uh, a director doesn't want their protagonists to be part of the Q&A because everything there is you need to know is in the film. So why would you want to sort of, because then you get stories like, oh, how are you doing now? And it might not be about that at all. Exactly. And just like um, the filmmaker want to, may want to keep the focus on the film. Yeah. Or they might mm -hmm. not agree about certain things. I mean, it could also be that I'm as a documentary filmmaker that you're exposing somebody so then it's completely out of the question oh, that you're exactly involving yes. your protagonist <laughs> but I mean that's a, the other end of the spectrum but then yeah it it, it it starts with that conversation do we want to involve them or not and if we do I would say I usually stay with them I don't usually stay with any kind of press interviews because unless a, a director wants me to I would say with protagonists, I usually stay there because I, I do feel that responsibility to protect because it's it's going to it's going to be new and the whole film industry and just being at a film festival and imagine that you've just been the subject in a very very personal documentary and then you have to face this crowd of people who just saw you at your most vulnerable moment that can be really scary particularly in situations like that, when protagonists are involved, they choose, you know, the director wants to be involved and then they want to be involved. There, there really needs to be a lot of prep, yeah. particularly like if you're dealing with topics like around mental illness or like situations around abuse. Yeah. I think it's so important that not only that protagonists be prepped, but also be talked to about like boundaries. Cause you know, if they get asked a question, you know, they are free to say, they could be free to yeah. say no. Yeah. You know, that you know that that's none of your business, or I'm not going to um ask Definitely. That. Or even just making a protagonist clear, you you don't need to do any press at all. You don't need to be here if you don't want exactly. to be here. 
And exactly. that's where that's also a responsibility, I think, of a publicist, but also of a director to just work on that together and to determine that. And I mean, sometimes you have protagonists that want, you know, that may be activists that really want to get involved. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So then right. you should. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and also, as you say, it's also about prepping your talents. It also might mean that if you're working with a sensitive subject that you have to tell your directors, listen, these are the questions that might be fired at you. Be ready for them. Get an answer. And it doesn't always mean that I will need to provide them with the answer. But you do talk to them about what, maybe sort of what terms you should use and what are things to avoid. And sometimes it might even help if somebody's not, I mean, I'm not a native English speaker, so maybe get a native speaker involved just to discuss the sensitivity of certain words if you don't know. So, you know, hire an expert in terms of language or in terms of the topic uh, in the English language. That might even help. Great to hear this, that you are so deliberate in, in, in these things because you do have to prepare. And like, and this is part of the strategy. Yeah, it is. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, as far as the developing the strategy, like not only promoting the film, but also like letting the filmmaker know, okay, these are some of the places where you may be challenged or yeah. questioned. And it's also about positioning that film in a certain context. And I think that's also why I work at European film festivals, because I know the European content and I might be able to know if this film is premiering at IFA, I might, I, I know what's happening in the Netherlands and what sort of is the societal context of that film premiering there. Right, right. So the more local you can get a publicist, the better it is, because I don't, I mean, I'm aware of American pop culture, but I don't know how things work on a day-to-day basis, so it's always better to get somebody local. It's the same if you're premiering at the Shanghai Film Festival, or at the DMZ um, festival in Korea, get somebody who is local because they will know how the contact with the press will work, but also how the whole context of the film is going to be. Uh, I work, do a lot of work with um, impact campaigns. The term that we use when we're trying to educate filmmakers on what impact is, is to basically understanding your story environment that's a term that Doc Society developed and, or phrase that Doc Society developed and it's in the Impact Fill Guide. But it's just basically understanding what's happening in the world, yeah. whether that be the, the larger world or like your, your local world. Doc Society, Impact Fill Guide. Um, I've done, done a lot of work with Doc Society and they're, they're good pitch local yeah. events. And I feel like they are the leader and their fill guide is in, I think, eight different languages wow, so yeah def- definitely reference them I-, I feel like they're like the ogs of the impact yeah. world oh good no i mean, it, I mean it's, it's good that you mention it as well because there are a lot of people who ask me if i do impact campaigns because there is there is sometimes a very fine line there are elements yeah. exactly exactly there are elements of it it can yeah. sort of sometimes right. naturally transition into an impact campaign or maybe an outreach campaign, mm-hmm. even though I'm still trying to figure out what the exact difference is <laughs> between all of these terms, but it, it can be very much about trying to impact a certain 
group in society. Right. Because like when you were referring to like how some filmmakers you're working with, their focus is going to be more on getting the word out about the, the project in the industry. But then you also mentioned like sometimes they're targeted screenings like in, in communities. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's totally that's totally impact. So yeah. may, and maybe in your work, you kind of like get the ball rolling and then they need to bring on an impact producer to kind of continue. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and I, yeah. I, I mean, there are great impact producers there and there are also, there've been projects in the past where I've worked directly with an impact producer during a launch at ITFA, for example. So then I will mostly be looking at let's say the local release of that film, if it's going to be Itfa, how is that film going to be premiering in Amsterdam and let's say the whole film industry and then that impact producer can be a great addition in just getting the film beyond that festival screening and beyond that sort of community of people that will go to Itfa anyway. Publicists and impact producers working together. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, we're going to wrap things up, but I always like to give our guests the last word. So last word. No, I think we, we talked about this a little bit briefly, but I think it all comes down. Don't be scared to approach a publicist and be very, very open with them about what you want and what you want to get out of that festival and just open up the conversation with them because we're not that scary and we're here to really really help you and I think that's once we see a film that we can get behind we're going to be working just as much as you are on getting that film out there and just be there with you and I think that's don't be scared just give it a try Thank you so much, Miriam, for not only being on the podcast, but also giving us an inside scoop of what a publicist does in Europe and for being our first publicist on the show. Publicists do more than damage control. They are there to be by a filmmaker's side to help them introduce your film to the world. It is a relationship that is rooted in collaboration and mutual trust, just like any filmmaking relationship. And don't forget, as soon as you know you're going to be at a festival, reach out to a publicist local to the area to help you get on the right track. And if you are attending INFA, make sure to check out the many films that Noise PR is representing, including those that are part of the Generation Africa strand. Thank you so much for listening today. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcasts. Next week, we'll be back in the United States and headed to Seattle as I chat with Indigenous filmmaker Raven Two Feathers. And speaking of IFA, we have more IFA-themed programming coming to you this month. We'll talk more about that in the next episode. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And... You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Chumash and the Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. 